Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. The unemployment and economic figures we saw this week were truly dire. They revealed that some 730,000 people have lost their jobs since the beginning of the coronavirus lockdown, with redundancies from household names including British Airways, WH Smith and many more. And that's before the furlough scheme ends. Britain fell into a clear recession with GDP collapsing an unprecedented 20.4%. The worst in the G7, twice the fall seen in Germany. GDP in the EU as a whole fell by 11.4%. Even self-designated national cheer-upper Boris Johnson admitted that there is a long, long way to go for the British economy. Yet despite these huge job losses, the recorded unemployment rate remains at a record low of 3.9%, unchanged from the start of lockdown, raising questions of whether we measure unemployment accurately. Are we about to enter an age of mass unemployment on the scale of the early 1980s? And what can any government do about it? Here to help me with this is Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government, Giles Wilkes, who's been a Special Advisor on Economic and Industrial Policy to both Theresa May and Vince Cable. Hello, Giles. How are you doing? I'm really, I'm really well, Andrew. How are you doing? Oh, not bad, not bad. So, firstly, I mentioned the the measurements issue of, un, of of unemployment in the UK. What is the scale of the of the coming mass unemployment? Are we measuring it right, and do we do we know the shape of that unemployment? What it's going to hit? Look, it's a really good question because right now you could you could argue that both of the major economic figures that came out this week and dominated the headlines are kind of weird and false and need to be ignored or discounted to a certain degree. First on unemployment, I think that unemployment figure is for people who are out of work and are looking for work. And because we've just gone through this period where everyone was told, stay at home or we'll pay you not to work, it's, it's incredibly false. So there's a, there's a kind of a time fuse going on there, as you identified, that when the furlough scheme ends, when people are genuinely out there looking for work and finding that they can't and recording a different number in the survey, then we'll get the proper figure. So you can't trust that headline unemployment figure. I think much more um, striking is the employment number. That 730,000 drop is like 2% of the workforce stopping working in a quarter, which I think is probably unprecedented. It's in- incredibly fast. And um, and we just don't know what the reaction is going to be when the furlough scheme ends, which it is almost certainly doing in October. What it seems that the government is going to rely on is the old copybook from the recovery from the financial crisis working again, which is that when people are shoved out there and they don't have very much income, they find a job no matter what. And that, that kind of worked for eight or nine years after the financial crisis. 
One of the reasons for that drop in employment in the UK in particular is that we're a service sector economy and cinema, restaurants, hotels, live entertainment, stuff like that is 13% of our economy, but it's only, for instance, 11% in the US and 10% in the Eurozone in general. Are we especially, but because we sort of dashed for the the service economy, which obviously doesn't sit very well with uh, the end of face-to-face contact, are we especially vulnerable to, to job losses in that area? Well, you know, I've, I've, I've heard that theory. I don't think it's as extreme as you think. I mean, the really extreme economy, if you like looking, stepping back and looking at the big historical trend, which is moving from 40% of people being in manufacturing just after the war to around 10% now, the really extreme economy is Germany. The fact that Germany hasn't had that same large effect itself, it's the outlier. The German economy is so excellent at manufacturing that it still has 20 20 percent, 22% maybe of people in manufacturing. You don't get that in the UK. And we haven't had it since the massive drop in job numbers there at the beginning of the 80s um, under Margaret Thatcher. But I think nearly every economy is basically like that in one way or another. So I think our particularly poor figures for GDP, this is a very dull answer, but it's more about the timing. We're talking about the second quarter being so much weaker than the first quarter in GDP. And because our lockdown was relatively late, our first quarter was relatively high compared to some of the others. And the fall off was much more captured in that second quarter. So I don't think you can really blame the service sector dominance of the economy yet for all of that. I don't think we we're that much bigger in things like cinemas and cafes and so forth. After all, our cafe culture was way behind the continents for a long time. What are the industries that you think will be harmed over the long term by COVID and and the subsequent recession? Well, I think the biggest um, worry for me is simply the high street, because the high street, if you just extracted it from all the other economic statistics since, I don't know, 2007, 8, has been in a permanent recession. It's been falling really hard as online commerce has taken its business anyway, and the retail figures have never been particularly strong. We haven't had a sort of a big retail boom for a great long while. And then COVID has just accelerated this and has given everybody the opportunity to explore more online shopping anyway. So anything to do with the need to go to the high street has has just been hit recently. And we might not see the same return to offices, which provide an awful lot of business there. So all of those fast food shops or Itsu and Pret and so forth. So I think that one there, if I was if I was a stock market analyst trying to work out what level of demand will return for that kind of business, I wouldn't know whether to put it back at 100% once everything's passed through or 70% of the previous levels of demand. But given the tight margins, um, it's anything less than 100% and you're going to see an awful lot of closures. So, I mean, historically, when you look at, periods of, of, of mass unemployment what what measures are open to government in general not specifically this government but you know the levers that are available i mean i remember you know i was at school in the 1980s um recessions yeah. and, and mass unemployment and you know they you know uh, my economics teacher would go on about how this is being financed by north sea, north sea oil without north sea oil the entire country would be going bankrupt we don't have that resource anymore in the same way osborne decided to impose austerity we can't really do that in the same way so what can this government fall back on Gosh, it's a really good question. I mean, historical comparisons are really difficult right now, partly because, I mean, that 80s unemployment was not only 
all about this massive movement out of manufacturing. All in a, a couple of years, the pound went really high because of that oil boom. And suddenly manufacturing was dropping 15, 20% a year at, at certain times. It was also really regionally concentrated. There were whole, as I heard a, another podcaster say this week, it was kind of like the full Monty recession. This was hitting all of those former manufacturing places outside of the Southeast. So we can't really learn very much from that because even in the great financial crisis, we went nowhere near those levels of unemployment, which then lasted for a decade. So we can't learn very much from that. We do know that they, the attempt of the Thatcher government to just assume that the free market would reallocate people, that notori- notorious statement of Norman Tebbets that you can just get on your bike and find a job, that didn't work. They were actually very surprised that the free market didn't fix it. They, they thought, well, sooner or later, wages will adjust to the right level and unemployment would fall. It didn't for the whole of that decade. And there are whole parts of the economy that still associate the 80s with an absolutely terrible scarring level of unemployment. So what what resources do we now have? The resources that we think work nowadays are quite straight, straightforwardly a very, very flexible labour market, one where people can get into jobs really, really quickly, where there are not big barriers to entry, as it were, where employers are quite quick to hire people, much quicker to hire people than they are to invest in capital equipment, where there's quite a big pressure valve in the sense of immigration, that normally when our economy is going very, very strongly, we take in a lot of immigrants. So if the economy is weak, the first thing that might happen is a lot of immigration goes back to the continent. So so, um, so what kind of resources can we now rely on as a, an economy to try to deal with this unemployment? Well, Back in the 80s, we had a very inflexible labour market, more dominated by unions. You would get much higher unemployment and higher wages. What we have nowadays is what you call a very, very flexible labour market. It's very easy to hire people. Um, businessmen are much more likely to hire people than invest in capital equipment or training, which you might say means we've gone too far the other way. But as a result, when we grow even quite weakly, which we did from the 2020. 10 um, recovery from the financial crisis, you get a very high employment, low productivity outcome, which while that causes all sorts of other problems, including in-work poverty and low wages, you do get high employment. And we were just about to enjoy really high employment just before the coronavirus crisis hit. So if I was in the Treasury and being asked, what's your mechanism? The, the first answer you'd imagine a typical Treasury official right now would be saying to the Chancellor is, use your existing labour market model. It tends to produce good employment and you don't need to worry too much about where exactly those jobs are going to come from. I mean, you did you raised the objection right there, didn't you? The, the idea that uh, high employment in itself is not a solution to, well, certainly the problems that have driven most of the political changes in this country over the, over the past five years, and particularly the Conservative yeah. government going all in on the red wall. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure, not sure that those voters will be particularly impressed to, to be told, well, the employment rate is really high if wages are depressed, if if uh, you know if jobs are casualised, and so on. Oh, it's terrible. It's what contributed towards the unhappiness that led to the Brexit vote, a lot of people feel. The idea that you can work as hard as you like and you still can't get ahead, you still can't afford a house. It's, 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 a, difficult, um, it's a difficult judgment because they wanted to address that. We've been having really high increases in the national minimum wage and efforts to regulate the labour market again in areas like zero um, hours contracts. It's just very difficult to do that when you're also suffering an unemployment crisis. The question now is whether the Conservatives see the return of 10% unemployment or the prevalence of low-wage work as the bigger problem. I want to ask you about 
the furlough scheme and also the kind of the state of the public finances. I mean, under the furlough scheme, almost 10 million people have had their wages paid by the government. There's been further uh, help for self-employed people, which I think one of the estimates was that 12 million people were in one way or another being supported by the government. This scheme is going to wind down from September, but it's doing so in an environment where government borrowing and the national debt are at historic highs. Does the government have the room to manoeuvre to subsidise and intervene yet more into the future if it wants to? I mean, have we, are, are we in danger of becoming dependent on government subsidy of sectors of the economy? In terms of can it afford it financially, there's an unambiguous yes. The government can right now borrow at almost sort of zero normal and interest rates in real terms, inflation-adjusted terms, negative sums of money. So if they felt that an investment of several tens or even hundreds of billions right now might get the economy onto a sharply growing um, pathway and see employment rise again, it would be worth it because then those people pay taxes and so forth and they've done the investment at negative real rates. So they can afford it financially. The dilemma they're facing is whether continuing to subsidise and protect people from the free market ends up damaging the economy as well because the reason we tend to recover as an economy Anglo-Saxon economies like ours is because we reallocate people into the jobs where things are growing and when they're not and the sorts of measures we've introduced like the furlough scheme crystallize people in their existing work so this is an incredibly difficult statement to make politically and in a way it's been very brave of Rishi Sunak to make it but to imply we need you now to be subject to the laws of the market because that's the way the economy is going to grow even though that's incredibly uncomfortable for people and it tends to make people a little poorer. On the whole, when you're sacked in a recession and you go out and find another job, the next job is 5 or 10% worse than the job you just left. You wanted to stay in that previous job for a good reason. So, But he's, he's putting his money on that because that's what Thatcherite conservatives believe. The market will find you a better job, but it, you better let it work. Otherwise, we will never really recover. We'll be stuck in zombie jobs with companies that are being subsidized beyond what is rational but boy um it's easier to say that from a podcast than it is to actually do it i'm, I'm going to sort of rephrase an, an earlier question really you know you, you mentioned that you know a, a flexible labor market reallocates people to where the jobs are growing where are the jobs going to grow in the post-covid economy do you, do you have any indications of this whether you know these are going to be the growth sectors these are going to be the sectors that are maybe the equivalent of you know what heavy manufacturing was in the early 19 yeah, in the early 1980s and late 70s? Well, there's a meta question above all that, which is some most of the time the government says, I don't have to have a view on that. The government didn't anticipate that certain retail sectors would grow or certain manufacturing sectors would sink. They just say there's a high enough level of spending in the economy, that spending will find workers. So normally they don't have to say where and when. The question is because of COVID being so special and COVID coming with all sorts of important um statements like pubs can't operate like this or theatres can't operate like that, the government now has to answer that question because it's not fair for them to be telling people not to operate without also coming up with a plan. Now, where where will places be growing? Well, you can think of lots of examples because a lot of the previous sectors have, have in effect, become more unproductive in the sense that you need more people wiping surfaces and organising queues and, in a a sense... um, Every, this is what low productivity means. We need more workers to produce the same amount of output. And that's what COVID is. It's a kind of a hit to our productivity. So a lot of the former face-to-face sectors now require more people anyway, would be that distributing 
goods through the economy or um, making sure that venues and so forth are safe. So in theory, there ought to be quite a high demand for labour. The problem is going to be if we end up being poorer because of COVID, everyone, we can't afford to pay everyone at the same levels if we're also hiring lots more people. So there, there ought to be jobs in the COVID economy simply because there's a need to do a lot of this stuff to cope with COVID. It's just not necessarily going to be very remunerative for people. When the mass unemployment of the early 80s that I talked about and the late 2000s, were, they were different but they were psychologically scarring in their own way. The 80s end of, man, end of mass manufacturing, yeah. 2000, the beginning of mass casualization. Do you think, do you think the, the British people are psychologically prepared for this experience? It's been, I mean, I can, I'm in my 50s, I can dimly remember it. Yeah. But if you're in your 30s. I don't think we are at all. I, I'm still in a state of shock about the extreme, extreme, extremeness of COVID. I mean, the, for all that I sort of tried to downplay the quarter two GDP figures, there's still like several movements of the chart off what we've ever, ever seen before. And we have mostly been making optimistic assumptions, saying things like, well, the vaccine turns up and eventually things return to normal. Vaccines have never been produced this quickly and this safely. It may well be that the economy is permanently changed and we look back on this weird period where we'd get into crowded underground trains and head towards a, a crowded pret-a-manger and then cram into lifts and go to offices as a weird kind of um, before times paradise that isn't going to come back again. So, I mean, the difference with the 80s, I mean, the, the loss of the jobs in the 80s was very associated with a very difficult part of the economy, which is where do you find work for um, intermediate skilled, normally men, um, in unionized work, where if you don't provide that, you have very, very concentrated spots of unemployment, whole towns wiped out, the company town idea. And and that's not, it's, it's going to be much more even this time. That geographical impact was very, very important. And people's sense of identity being destroyed from losing this kind of work. A lot of those people who the um, Thatcherites expected to go off and just get another job just went onto the sickness rolls instead. They were so profoundly knocked by the loss of their core job, be it mining or, or manufacturing or something, that they weren't able to move over. And I don't think we're currently in that situation anymore. I think a lot of the people who are losing their work right now will find it easier to move tangentially because they're not, they're, they weren't associated with a single very deep and specialised industry as before. But it's still going to be really, really shocking. It's just been the case for a very long time. If you really look for work, you can get it. And the idea that there won't be a job for you, you might have to make endless applications. We haven't been there since the early 90s. And I don't think we're psychologically prepared for it at all, no. You mentioned Norman Tubbett's bike earlier. I mean, you know, good luck finding a bike at all now. There's a bike, bike shop at the yeah. top of my road and there's a queue around the block to try to try and get bikes. But that you do raise a, a good point there, which is our unemployment uh, system is based around the idea of the job seeker. Yeah. You know, the job seeker's allowance. The, with, with the underlying assumption that uh, you have to be looking for a job or you don't deserve support. What do you do if, as you've said, people are sending out hundreds of job applications for jobs that aren't there? What does that do to the surrounding the surrounding politics as, as well as to our society? Well, I think particularly because the government has made such expansive, sort of almost Scandinavian promises to the people that we're going to be there for you, we're not going to leave you alone. 
and we're uh, we're not gonna you're you're not to be blamed for this thing. I mean, Rishi Sunak is, in particular is so associated with this that I think the pressure to produce mechanisms to look after people is going to grow and grow. Whereas five or six years ago, the Conservative Party orthodoxy was polling evidence says that people don't like welfare. Even the poor resent the welfare recipients. We can get lots of savings out of cutting the safety net. The COVID crisis, I think, has changed a lot of the psychology around that. There are very serious proposals that we should elevate universal credit and keep it there. There are very serious proposals that we should create new institutions to train people so that if you're not in work, we should be finding ways to keep your skills current or retrain you to jobs of the future. Very serious proposals that the government itself should create work, in particular through the green industries or, for example, like lagging houses or replacing boilers or so forth. These are the sorts of things that I, I'm, a, I'm a, a, as you all know, a former Lib Dem policy advisor. These sorts of things you'd see in a Lib Dem fringe conference pamphlet you would not see them coming out of the Conservative um, government of the day. They would be saying the market should fix it. But all the t- you're getting more and more of these calls for the government to actually create a better environment for workers. Some of this must reflect the fact that they've now got a very different sort of um, constituency makeup. I, d- I think a lot of these former Labour seats, they wouldn't be expecting to hear all this rhetoric about you're on your own and get on your bike. So it'd be very interesting to see whether this pressure produces a real political drive to generate answers here and then if they do produce that drive whether they can produce it competently because this is difficult stuff it's really not easy to create a whole new architecture of job support and um retraining but the call is getting louder and louder before we wrap up in this this recession is happening just as employment was changing radically anyway technology was reshaping it you know we're, mm. we've, we've left the eu and we may be on course for an extremely hard brexit how do you expect the british economy to emerge from all this what's our economy going to look like i'd be i you'd give i'd have a happy half hour of not thinking about brexit there so <laughs> to get it in the end i'm so sorry what's that that stomach ulcer feeling suddenly rising Brexit might really be a real kick in the gut just after we've sort of been whacked around the head, as it were, by coronavirus, because the economists have already done the work analysing who was worried about Brexit, who was hit in the stock market when the Brexit vote came out, versus who's been whacked by the coronavirus crisis. And it is exactly as that image of mine comes up. One part of us was hurt by coronavirus. Another part might then get kicked by Brexit because the exporting industries, the manufacturing industries that need a kind of smooth access to international markets, those are the ones that might be hurt by Brexit. So I am worried that the recovery might be derailed by having a bad Brexit, for which we're not prepared because a lot of the effort and investment that you need to prepare for it will have been sapped from us by coronavirus so i think you're right to raise that even if you gave me another stomach ulcer <laughs> um so um so yeah that's that's a serious worry what is the second part of your question you got me totally distracted by well how, how do you expect the economy to, to to be reshaped how do you expect us to emerge from this because you know, we were not the same economy oh, yeah. in 1987 as we were in 1980, and we were not the same economy in 2012 as we were in 2010. And the rise of the robots and everything. Um, I, I've always been slightly sceptical about the rise of the robots, not because it's not happening, because it clearly is. I mean, here we are recording this thing remotely where we'd previously have to have gone in and use a studio. There's all sorts of examples throughout all sorts of industries where we're using IT more and we need less human labour. So it's clearly going on, but it's always been going on. It's always been the case that the economy generates new kinds of employment when technological advance finds replacements for labour. Also, 
to use a very boring economist phrase, it's endogenous in the sense that because the demand for certain labour is lower, wages are lower, and therefore it still makes sense to hire people at those lower wages. So because we don't have a shortage of labour, in fact, we're going to have a surplus of it, the economy's signals are going to be, let's find, try and find uses for people. So I'm not worried about the rise of the robots directly. In theory, it can even make people more productive, like you know, you can do podcasts from your living room. That's making you more productive. So I think um, I think that's going to be going on anyway, but it's always been going on. And in fact, some of the technological innovations we had earlier in recent history, like just the invention of word processors, have been more significant than some of the ones we all get hyped up about right now. So it's we, we're going to continue to suffer ferment, but ferment is normal in modern economies. Hmm. I just like wish it wasn't. <laughs> wish it wasn't happening now. I wish it was happening at another time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's terrifying, and we are you know we are living in the curse of interesting times. Um, but thanks for joining us to explain some of what's going on. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again and again in coming months and years. I because think you're exactly right. We'll wonder how we were ever talking about anything else. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll see you again on The Bunker one of these days, I very much hope. Listeners, thanks to you for listening. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. And the main panel podcast is out on Wednesdays. You can get every edition early and without adverts, plus our delightful range of Bunker merchandise as well. When you back us on the crowdfunding platform, Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more thanks for listening and we'll see you soon the bunker daily was produced and presented by andrew harrison the assistant producer was jacob archbold and audio production was by me alex reese theme tune by kenny dickinson the bunker daily is a podmasters production <laughs>